You are a product of your environment. I'm sure you've heard this before. You live the way you do. You think the way you do because of the experiences you've had in life. Growing up how you did, your family, they've been a part of it, your friends, your school, and significant encounters with certain people, places, or situations. They've all helped to shape the way you view the world. It shapes your opinions, your mindset, and ultimately the way you choose to live. Now, there's no way that you could have predicted as a child that you'd be living the exact way you are today in the neighborhood, the house, the apartment, uh, with the people that you live with. There's just no way you could have predicted that because there's another component in here. It's chance or serendipity. Now, I'm sure there's many things that you can uh, sort of connect with that. Maybe you won't, wouldn't have a motorcycle if you didn't meet somebody who had one. Maybe you wouldn't have moved to the place you live now if you hadn't have seen something in a magazine, you know, those type of things. And it's the culmination of life experience that makes you the individual that you are. There's many people out there who could, on the surface may seem similar to you, but there's no one, no one that's exactly like you. Possessions don't shape your character. The experience does. So if you travel along with me on this train of thought, that your, your past experiences help shape you into what you are today, then imagine what you could learn from the experiences you haven't had yet, or maybe that you could have. Greg and Melanie Turp have been on the road for a decade, and I think you're going to hear today that experience has not only shaped their lives, but it's become an obsession for them. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Simon Manikids, Simon Austin Vance, Simon Pavey, Brian Phil, Jocelyn Snow, Carl Parker, Simon Thomas, Grant Johnson, Jimmy Lewis, Elspeth Jim Jansen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Um, my name is Melanie Turp. And uh, I'm Greg Turp. Greg and I actually usually tell people that we aren't really from anywhere. We're in Northeast Alabama right now. We have a residency in Florida, but we travel full time. We've been basically traveling for about 10 years. So no real residence um, in the traditional sense. I guess you could say we're sort of retired. So we just uh, we just travel now. Melanie, Greg, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on the show. I mean, it's great to talk with you. And I guess we have you at a perfect time because you're taking a little hiatus right now from your travel, forced. <laughs> yeah, um, we were in the beginning of a, uh, a trip down through um, uh, Spain and Portugal into Morocco. And uh, Melanie had an eye surgery back in January, so I flew out early to um, pick up my motorcycle in the UK with a friend of mine, Nigel, and uh, traveled south and uh, took the ferry around to Spain. And just as I got there, things were starting to get a little weird. Uh, Italy had already seen part of this coronavirus, and um, so I 
kept heading down. I was going to pick up Melanie in Porto in a, you know, two or three days from then. And about that time, Spain was talking about locking down and Melanie was having trouble getting into Spain and into Portugal. So we had to make some quick changes in our trip, finally got her there. And um, at that time, Morocco had already shut down. Spain was shutting down that day and Portugal was talking about it. So we ended up having about three or four days to get out of Portugal before they shut down. So I found a, a, a guy down in uh, Lisbon that was going to take my motorcycle and store it for me. And we actually got the last flight, last commercial flight out of Lisbon back into the UK uh, the day we left. Wow. So it's sort of like the nooses were closing all around and you, you sort of just slipped through. Yeah, pretty much. We um, There were two flights leaving that morning um, into the UK and... Uh, one of them canceled, and the one into Gatwick that we were on is the only one that went. Oh wow! Hmm. Now you you mentioned right at the start there that you're you're not from anywhere, Melanie. You said that you that you like to tell people that that's sort of the way you you say it. Can you talk about that? What does that mean? You're not from anywhere. Like, have you disowned your country, or is there another <laughs> way to, to view it? Well, go go first. Uh, well, we we have a mailing address. But in the last 10 years, the longest we've been in any one spot, in the, even in the U.S., has been three months. And that was in January because of my eye surgery. So we don't – people can't always wrap their head around not having a home base. Um, but that's really – I mean, I, I grew up in South Dakota um, and moved to Florida when Greg and I got married. But – I don't feel like we have a particular spot that's really what I would call home. Yeah, and I grew up in uh, New York, and my parents moved to Daytona Beach, Florida when I was young. So I spent a little bit of time there and went to school there and worked most of my career in uh, as a perfusionist in cardiac surgery in um, down in the Fort Myers, Naples area. And... Uh, during all that time, you know, raised kids down there and they all moved out of Florida and about the only thing left down there was my mom still. And uh, we, we made some changes in our lives about uh, you know, 16 years ago now, which involved, which ended up with us being uh, without a home base and, and uh, decided that we just wanted to travel from then on. I was wondering if it also has to do with the way you look at the world, because and one of the things that, you know, we were just talking about, um, about how things change the more you travel. And, um, you know, when you grow up in an area in a small neighborhood, for instance, you get to know your neighborhood, you're very comfortable. If you go to the next neighborhood over, it's kind of scary. It's uncomfortable. The people seem to be mean. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, uh, just a difference there, but that is, you get used to that, that expands. And then pretty soon you're comfortable you're in your state or your province or whatever. And it sort of moves up. You guys are now, you've been traveling for many years years now is has it opened up for you that way like in the way that i'm describing yeah um we started it was sort of a, a progression um when we got together i'd ridden motorcycles for most of my life and melanie had never really been on one and uh we got together and bought a small motorcycle and started doing just local trips which ended up being longer trips to a different motorcycle which uh, we got involved with the long distance community and uh, started doing fundraiser rides and all kinds of stuff. But then my uh, ultimate goal was to ride the 
biggest trip I could think of at the time to Alaska. And um, so we rode uh, a fundraiser trip um, for the Eldridge um, Children's Home out of Alabama, rode from Key West up to um, Alaska and back, ended up writing a book about it. And during that time writing the book, um, I met a person, uh, Carla King, who helped me write the book, helped me just sort of guide me through the, the process and had invited us to a, um, a motorcycle event in California, uh, First Horizons event that we went to. And that opened our eyes as to what really was possible out there. We met a lot of really cool people. And then from there, we went to um, uh, Overland Expo, met a lot more people. A lot of them become really good personal friends, which led us to more international travel down through Mexico and um that was our first really big international trip. It was just a couple of weeks down through the Baja. And um, then our life just sort of just flip-flopped. Everything, everything changed. And uh, we started doing a lot of international traveling. Nothing more than three months at a time. But um, a bunch of international traveling, bought bikes and borrowed bikes. And, uh, and our views through all that... What would you think? I mean, our, you know, when you when you grow up in America, you have an American uh, viewpoint, any, any kind of first world country, not just America. And once you get out and meet people of different cultures and sit around with a couple guys in Albania uh, eating cheese and drinking beer and no one speaking the language, um, you just start to get a different idea of the way the world operates. And it's not as scary out there as what you are made to believe. And it's, you know, the people are just people and the people are always, we've always had friendly people. We've never met really anybody that was, you know, that we felt our lives were endangered. So yeah, our whole viewpoints with, you know, travel and the world has definitely changed in the past 10 years. Melanie, maybe you can expand on what Greg is talking about there. Talk about the, the difference between, like, you, you know, you're saying you, Greg, you're saying that um, you're meeting people and you're finding that people are the same. How is that enough to make you feel different? I mean, that that's sort of almost an obvious thing when you think about it. You know, people are the same. Okay. But what is it about that that really connects with you, Melanie? Well, I, I've always been a, a fairly extroverted person and I talked to everyone. She and, was a realtor for a few years. <laughs> and I, that I explains tend a lot, to, I tend it? to believe... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, anyway <laughs> I, I tend to believe that everyone has a story. And, and if you talk long enough, it's unbelievable the things people will share with you. And you find out that people are really just people. And, and we've made friends all over the world fairly quickly. Um, mostly because when you talk to a stranger, you have, you have no boundaries. You know, who am I going to go tell if you tell me a secret? Mm -hmm. You know, people will share unbelievable things with you. And a smile is an unbelievable icebreaker. Um, I just feel like, like, I I grew up in a small town in South Dakota where people didn't really go anywhere. And when Greg and I started traveling, I figured out that the world wasn't such a big, scary place because people will open their arms to you when we when we've had um, places where we've needed help. We have had unbelievable people that have have 
turned to us and done way above and beyond what what I would have expected a stranger to do for someone, you know. So uh, I I I think that that um, people who travel the world have a much better um, focus on what's important. But we we love traveling and and we love being out of the country um, just because there's just so much more to see. So going back to what I was saying about the town then or about growing up in your neighborhood and then, and then, you know, seeing another neighborhood, does that realization when you, when you guys find that, that people are all alike and that people are more than alike, they're actually helpful, friendly. It seems like they're good people. What does that do? Does that, does that somehow make you more comfortable in a bigger area? Like sort of back to what I was saying about the neighborhood, it's all of a sudden where the world becomes your, your comfort zone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, I have family that can't wrap their head around the places that we go um, simply because they're comfortable in, in their town and in their neighborhood. And they think that that it's scary being these other places. But uh, and it's funny because you end up with people all wherever you travel where um, like, uh, you know, they're scared also of their neighbors. And it's, so it's not just us in America that's scared of travel. I mean, you go down to Guatemala and they'll tell you that Honduras might be a dangerous spot or Mexico might be a dangerous spot. And, you know, you know, you run into a lot of that, you know, that um, people are just a little bit leery of things that they don't understand. And unless you get out, uh, try to understand the culture a little bit, try to understand what has happened in their past, then you can sort of figure out, you know, where they're coming from and the troubles they've had to endure. Yeah. I, I mean, and I can see that, you know, if you, if anyone just thinks of where they are, where they live, and if you have a breakdown where you live, it's one thing to deal with it. But if you think about going somewhere foreign and having a breakdown, even in another state, another province, like I said, it becomes more of an issue because you haven't mm-hmm. got your, your familiar things there. You haven't got your contacts. You haven't got the places you're used to calling. But what you guys are discovering is that that doesn't really matter. Right. Right. I mean, we had a I had a breakdown in uh, Turkey uh, a couple of years ago and we were we we're actually looking for a place to stay. And we just could not find this place that I wanted to stay at. And from starting and stopping the bike so many times ended up the, the battery was old. It killed the battery as I c- came to find out. But uh, we ended up in the front a, of a, um, a house. It was like a, like a farm. And there were a bunch of uh, Turkish people outside that didn't speak any any of our language and they didn't quite know what to make of us and came over and tried to communicate and tried to help. And uh, this little one of the older women of the group, the, like the grandmother figure of the group, came over with a pomegranate and gave it to Melanie just because she wanted to help us. And that was the only way she knew how to do it. Mm. It makes you feel comfortable all of a sudden. It's like you're you're allowed to be there. You have a you know, they want you there. Yeah. Yep. So when it comes, I'm, I'm very curious about this because I think this is a, this is a sort of almost a fundamental problem. This is the part of the human condition. We, we are afraid of the things that we don't know. We fear those things and we make it up inside our head because as you guys prove, when mm-hmm. you go and travel and you meet these people in these strange places, you no longer have that. So before you did international travel, you probably had a, a sort of a mindset that like, if the bike breaks down, what are we going to do? Do you think like that now? Or did you think like that before? And do you think like that now? Or has that changed? Um, I, I, I sort of still think like that because it's always in the back of my mind. What if I, you know, what if you 
are stranded and can't get help. And I always make sure I carry enough provisions to last for, you know, a couple, three days just in case I can't get help or nobody comes along. And I've early on in the travel, if I was coming down a deserted road, uh, it happened one time in Mexico, we're down, going down the deserted road and I see two men with shovels in the middle of the road with no vehicles around. And I stopped on the side of the road because my brain is going crazy. I'm like, what is, what is this up to? What, you know, what do they want? And as we got closer, we found out it was just two boys filling potholes and all, all we did is, you know, gave them a few pesos as a thank you. They were just out doing work, trying to make a little extra money. But it's, you know, your mind sometimes takes off when it, there's really no need mm-hmm. to. Well, and, and when it comes to breakdowns, I mean, that, that's often the, your thought process. You know, when you're running locally, you'll think, well, should I go that far? Or should I get into that right now? Because if I have a breakdown, what am I going to do? But you, you're off in another country, in another land where you guys don't yeah. speak the language. And if something goes wrong, does that concern right. you at all? Um, it used to, but it, not so much anymore. Um, well, number one, I ride, my motorcycles that I ride are all old Suzuki V-Strom 1000s. Like the one I have in Europe right now, stuck in Portugal is a 2003 V-Strom 1000 with 140,000 miles on it. And, uh, it, it, it's such a simple machine that, I really would have a hard time getting totally stuck. So somebody around somewhere would be able to fix it. I've never had a problem getting something fixed on that old of a bike. It's not it's not high in electronics where you have to wait for a part to come in. I mean, that thing's been pieced and welded and all kinds of things and by the strangest people. But, um, yeah, I, that's why I basically ride a very simple bike. So if... Uh, if I break down, it can can be fixed. And number two, it's an inexpensive bike, so I'm not as visible, I don't think, as riding a, you know, twenty twenty five thousand dollar bike. And if everything goes pear shaped, I can I can walk away. So we do have a spot locator that we have dragged with us <laughs> for years, and we've used once. Um, we were in Croatia and had a flat tire on the bike. And we learned real quick, you have to be a little more careful about who you have as a contact for emergencies. But we ended up we ended up using it for the flat tire and probably shouldn't have because we ended up getting help from some local people and spent three days being taken care of by some guys who uh, who ordered the tire for us in Zagreb and fed us and took care of us and charged us nothing but the cost of the tire and had a great experience, ended up with friends. So, you know, a lot of times our breakdowns, we end up um, making friends with the people who end up helping us. And it's just one more positive experience from a negative one. Do you still carry the spot? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's an old one. I know people have had problems with it, but that thing has um, been with me probably. Well, I lost one. Actually, it's not it. I uh, had a, I was on a boat and a bird grabbed it when I was in New Zealand and took it off the boat. Big <laughs> albatross, I think it was, and just flew away with it. Wow. And uh, so I had to get a new one from there. But yeah, I've never had a problem with it. They, uh, 
They go along. Well, I mean, you carry it, I guess, for the same reason that I've had life insurance for 30 years, but never had to use it. But I, I like the fact yeah. that it's there, you know, if, if something goes wrong. Yeah. We did we did a, an episode right. on, uh, another episode on rescues and, and whatnot. And we ended up talking with the rescue center. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you know, the flat tire thing, they don't seem to have a problem with people using it if they really feel there's an emergency. And their, their idea is, hey, if you think it's an emergency, they're going to help you with it. So that's kind of nice to know. Well, I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't hit the SOS. I just hit the help that I needed help. And I had, um, it was actually to my son in the U.S. And um, it came to find, you know, he didn't speak Croatian and he had no idea what to do and sort of muddled his way through and ended up finding somebody that could have helped me. But I was, we were already fixed and going again by then. But uh, I figured, you know, that kind of thing, I shouldn't put that kind of pressure on just a, somebody who's not, um, traveling, I guess the way we do, it'd have to be somebody that understands what is really, uh, necessary to get, to get help. Yeah. That would be very tough. It's a whole different animal to deal with. Hey, let's talk about, um, about how you guys met and then, and then I want to move into, you know, what you guys have done. Melanie, your, your backstory. Um, well, I, I was, uh, born and raised in Pierre, South Dakota. And I was married um, very young. I had two children and um, kind of hit a point in my life where I, um, when when my oldest son was in college, that I really decided I was in the wrong relationship. And um, Greg and I met in Las Vegas. And he lived in Florida and I lived in South Dakota. And uh, we started a long distance relationship. And that kind of blossomed after a couple of long, long airline flights back and forth from Florida. And I ended up uh, moving to Florida and Greg and I got married a year later. That's very long distance when you're doing that. What was so special about Greg? (laughs) (laughs) You you know, I, I, I tell people that when you know, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, it, it, for some reason, it was just an, an an instant connection, but he's exposed me to some amazing things. You know, I, I'd never been any further from South Dakota than than Las Vegas in the first forty years I was I was alive, and so my uh, my perspective has changed a lot <laughs> in the last twenty years. What do you mean he's exposed you to a lot of things? What, what other things? Oh, he was a yeah, he was a traveler and his parents were, their background was traveling in Europe and he had this, um, this desire to go and, and do and explore. And so, um, I, I have an unbelievable view of the world now that I never would have had if I had stayed in South Dakota, that's for sure. And you were working as a real estate agent then? Yes. Mm. What was that like? Oh, I loved it. I, I I was selling real estate in the town I grew up in, and it was a small town. So, you make friends with the people you sell the houses to, and um, I could come and go as I pleased with basically, and I could still coach little league for my sons, and still do all the mom things that I wanted to do as far as my as my children were concerned. So for me, um, it was a it was a, a perfect job. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned already that you're outgoing, so that certainly helps when you're doing sales. <laughs> you know, I, I will tell you, I'm not really a salesman, um, but 
in that respect, when I have uh, had a someone I was showing houses to, we were friends first. Mm. So that always made made my job much easier. How about you, Greg? Ah, well, um, uh, well, I grew up basically in Daytona Beach, Florida. So I grew up on the beach and surfing and that kind of stuff. And uh, ended up having a, I, I got run over by a truck when I was 17, broke my back in three spots. And I was told that I would probably be paralyzed and in a wheelchair by the time I was 30. How so, did you get run over by a truck? Well, it was uh, Christmas break and some buddies of mine were out just fooling around in the woods and trucks. And one of them got stuck. And uh, one of my friends thought he'd just be funny and drive. We got on the back of the truck to give it more traction in the sand. And he thought it'd be funny and drive backwards through the woods with us hanging on. And it uh, hit a stump and threw us both off. And the truck ended up running, running over me. So it threw my buddy clear and I got I got smashed. That's one of those. Wow. That's a horrible story. Yeah. So they tell you you're not like you were walking, I guess, at that point you recovered from, but they're saying it's not going to last. Yeah. I, um, you know, went to the hospital intensive care and at first, you know, the whole same thing, you're going to probably not survive. And then, you know, you're not going to walk and all this kind of stuff. And I just sort of never envisioned that happening. So I, I ended up being lucky. My, um, the, it was just bones that were broken. I, uh, I was, you know, fairly strong back then. And um, the spinal cord didn't have really too much damage. So um, I just sort of went through it and ended up getting back and walking and uh, ended up uh, meeting some people when I was going to uh, school, an orthopedic resident that got me going to a gym and strengthened me up and everything. And, uh, you know, ended up with my career and kids and just sort of, you know, did okay. You know, I always have the pain and I always, it's always a memory of, uh, what, what, what I should have been doing, which is nothing. And it sort of pushes me and sort of gave me a timeline also, because I felt that at some point I, uh, this back thing would catch up with me and I wouldn't be able to do what I wanted to do. So, uh, that was one of the, things that was always in the back of my mind to travel. I don't want to wait till I'm too late and can't. So that's, that was one of the things in my, uh, that sort of spurred me on to, uh, to travel. I was always a, always a bug for maps in any way. So I always had maps and studied maps and yeah. What were your parents travelers? Did you travel with them? Um, I, I didn't travel. They, they did travel. They traveled, uh, every year they would pretty much, um, fly off to Europe when I was older, they'd fly off to Europe and rent a car and just get lost for two or three weeks. And, um, I always thought that was pretty cool. And, um, we did a lot of vacations when I was younger, but nothing like that. But I, I think I got that from my mom. My mom is always a real, she was always a real travel bug studying the maps and all that kind of stuff. So I think I got a lot of that from her where I always, I always wanted to go. I could never sit still for very long. And I'm still like that. If I'm in one spot for too long, I start getting a little itchy and I need to do something, need to go somewhere. You mean geographically speaking? Yes. Yeah. Yep. What does a perfusionist do? What is that job? Um, that runs um, heart-lung bypass and cardiac surgery. So I was in, my job was basically keeping uh, a patient alive 
and uh, functioning, brain functioning and everything during the surgery portion so that uh, they would wake up and remember their family and remember their names when the surgery was done. Mm. So, yeah, I did that for about 35 years. And that was a very uh, uh, 24-7 job. I didn't get much time off. So for me to travel was pretty difficult. I couldn't have taken any sabbaticals to travel. The only thing I could usually do is take like a two-week vacation and hop on the bike or fly somewhere and do something. So that was pretty much the way it was for most of my career. And then um, we had a couple things happen. We did a medical mission in the Dominican Republic and uh, realized that all those, a lot of people over there were just as happy as can be and having very, very little to their names. And went back and started to just get rid of things and change our lives and uh, ended up basically giving almost everything that we had away and moving into a small camper. Now, now this is with you and Melanie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. This was with Melanie. And we moved into a small camper while I was still working a job in Florida to see if we could actually stay that close together without killing each other. And we survived four years of that. And then uh, decided that I uh, would wanted to travel more. So I took my perfusion job on the road and would take um, locums uh, contracts where I would cover you know, a hospital or a perfusionist for a week, two weeks, a month, all over the United States. And uh, so when I was doing that, we uh, would take about six months a year off where we could travel and hop on a bike and go somewhere. So it just, you know, went from there to it was still taking up too much time and we just decided to not work anymore. So when you, when you give your possessions away, is that, is that so that you can downsize to travel or is that because you get the idea that people that you've seen in the Dominican Republic were happy with nothing and you'd sort of like to do that? Both. Both. Uh, the, the first thing was, is we had, we just had too much and that just wasn't who we really were. And we're not, um, we're not people that collect things We're we're sort of minimalists which is good because we're both on the same page with that. We don't need stuff to make our, make us happy. So that was the first one. And about that time is when we'd been riding the motorcycle all over the United States, we had traveled basically to all 50 States by then on, on motorcycle. And, um, it was, uh, just something we needed to do. And then, you know, once we had gotten rid of a lot of stuff, the final step was getting rid of, uh, our possessions that we had in that small trailer and figuring out what we wanted to keep as, uh, you know, our memories of our life and put those in storage and, and hit the road. What happens with the stuff you put in storage? It's still there. (laughs) (laughs) We had it scattered. We had it scattered all over the United States. We had like three storage units sort of everywhere where we had stopped and put more stuff. And, um, we had come back from five months in Central America and um, we had our dog down there with us and uh, we'd gone through Mexico down to Costa Rica, ended in Costa Rica and then came back up. And when we got back up, I think Melanie was um, needing a base. So we came into uh, New Mexico. We uh, stopped and saw a guy in uh, Mazatlan and he had a place up in New Mexico. So we stopped there and found a little place in New Mexico that we thought we would buy and make it our home. 
And we ended up staying there five days the first year and like maybe a month and a half the second year during the winter while we were just back in the States. And it just wasn't working out for us. So we just ended up, we ended up selling it again. So we're going to take a two minute break. I want to tell you about a couple of sponsors that have helped make this episode possible, but stick around. We got a lot more coming up. The Red Rock Garage is located in Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33. Now grab a pen and a paper, write this down because you're going to want to remember the name of that town. Beaverdale. British Columbia. It's just north of Washington State and has some incredible riding in this area. Now, our friends at the Red Rock Garage run a coffee shop that is described as a small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. They've got fuel, camping, they even got a B&B. So you don't have to plan that much. You just have to find that on your GPS. Beaverdale, British Columbia. Get it out, program it in, make a note of it, and include it in a trip. You know, you're, no matter where you're heading, you're going across the country, you're going to Alaska, whatever. Stop there because that's where riders are stopping. The heart of Beaverdale, the Red Rock Garage is on the side of Highway 33. Now, drop by their website, have a look at what uh, all the fuss is about. It's um, redrockgarage.ca. Of course, .ca means Canada. Redrockgarage.ca. And uh, you can. there's all kinds of back roads, trails, roads. I mean, this is a, a rider's destination in Beaverdale. Anyway, drop them a line. Uh, anytime you're emailing, talk to them. Throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, redrockgarage.ca. Now is probably the best time to improve the performance of your ride and your ability to ride it by improving essential gear. Your foot pegs are your sole connection to your motorcycle, and they are your ticket to better handling and comfort, particularly when standing. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that they've designed specifically for us riders and the way we ride with the bikes we're riding. Their specially designed ADV-1 and ADV-2 style pegs are just the ticket for adding control, connection, and reducing strain on your feet. And if you ride the real tough stuff, maybe you're riding plenty of rocks, tight spaces, uh, deep ruts, things like that, they also have a peg for you. Have a look at what they've got at imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, email or, or you're dropping in or you see them at a show, please throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's imsproducts.com. So that decision to go, to, to hit the road and retire, how do you work that? Did you save up a bunch of money or you, were you already set up already or, or did you actually go to retirement and, and draw a, a, like a retirement check so you can travel? Yeah, well, we um, the last few years of working, we uh, lived very cheaply. I mean, we were I was traveling for a job and wherever I went, the company that would hire me would pay me a, a salary, basically, and also pay all my expenses. So we really had no expenses for maybe six years, probably five, six years. So we'd get to one place and we'd stay there and we'd ride around and I'd work when I had to work and we'd wait till the next contract come up and go somewhere else in the United States and do that and take three months off and go travel. And uh, so we just basically saved money. We saved as much money as we could and got to the point where we thought, you know, any time would be a, we could quit if the job got too tough for me. And I had a, I was working a contract in Vegas and had a very tough day, thought I had a stroke. And that was the last day of my work. Mm. 
And is it sustainable for you now? Uh, or do you have a, a, a sort of a deadline thinking, well, we can travel like this for another five, 10 years or something? No, this is sustainable now. So we lived off the money. And by the time uh, Social Security and everything kicks in, you know, we, we live so inexpensively anyway that, I mean, we'll be fine. So I don't I don't foresee really any time that we would change our lifestyle from what we are doing now. If, if anything, we're going to, since um, uh, my dog, we just had to put our dog, uh, Gypsy Girl, to uh, sleep uh, yesterday. So since that was one of the biggest reasons that we would limit ourselves to two to three months is because we didn't want to, number one, we didn't want to be away from her that long. She was a great dog. And we didn't want somebody else to have that responsibility for a long time. So we were always back and forth. And my mom just passed away a week ago, Gypsy, yesterday. So in that respect, we are sort of free to uh, travel away as long as we want. We still have our children here and grandchildren. So that will be the reason that we, you know, come back to the United States, so to speak. Wow, I'm really sorry for your loss. That's, that's a lot to take um, in a very short period of time. Yeah, it was, it's been a it's been a tough few weeks. Um, going back to to you guys and hitting the road and making your decision to go, did you have a plan in mind at that point? Did you say, okay, this is what we're going to do? We're going to do the world. We're going to head in this direction. Or how did you do at the start, and how does it work now? Um, at the start, it was sort of pretty much planned. You know, we would go here and spend uh, say ten weeks. And didn't real then we'd sort of plan as to what direction we would go and some things we wanted to see and just go from there. And the more we traveled, the bigger my list has gotten. And uh, so now I have a lot of things on the on the on the plans that we still haven't done. I mean, we traveled quite a few countries, about 62 today, I guess. And um, but. We still haven't been, I mean, we were supposed to be in Morocco right now, but uh, that didn't happen. And we still haven't been in Africa. I wanted, you know, South Africa and uh, Central Asia. We've been Southeast Asia and uh, South America. We haven't been there yet, but I've got a line on a bike down there in Ecuador. As soon as, soon as this stuff lightens up a little bit, I might be able to get a, another old V-Strom in uh, Ecuador. Right. And how are you doing it? You've mentioned several bikes there. Are you going and using bikes that are set up in, in certain places for you? Are you going and buying bikes every time in an area and exploring that area? How does that work? Well, when I went to New Zealand, um, there was a guy I had met through Horizons Unlimited uh, that had uh, loaned me a, a GS to ride for a month. So we went down there and rode around uh, New Zealand for a month on uh, on his bike. And the other bikes I've um, bought were, um, they were U.S. registered. And so we plated them. We, we did all the title transfers here in the U.S. And they were already overseas, like in Germany or wherever. And um, so we would buy a bike and just go over there. And it would be our bike, plates and everything. And uh, we would just ride it. And since they don't really have the temporary import pro um problems that uh, a lot of countries do. We can just leave it wherever. As long as we're out on time, no one really pays attention to how long the motorcycle stays. So when we're over there, we just make sure we leave it in one of the countries that it doesn't matter and uh, fly back and get it and head another direction. Right. That's a great way to, to do it, to just go and get a bike that's inexpensive. So you're not having to do the, the shipping thing. Um, 
Melanie, what was it like when you first hit the road? I mean, as a, as a full-time thing for you? Well, our, one of our first trips was up the East coast and it was on, uh, I think at the second or third motorcycle that, that we owned together. And I didn't have an Airhawk or anything like that. Didn't take me long to figure out that I needed a comfortable bike if we were going to be traveling um, long distances and for long periods of time. But I, I love traveling by, by motorcycle, and he makes sure I'm good and comfortable. Um, I can, I'm more comfortable on the motorcycle traveling all day than I am in a car. Oh, wow. So, I mean, other than, other than weather issues, I'm not a big fan of riding in the wind. The wind tends to, uh, scare the bejesus out of me, (laughs) (laughs) but other than that, uh, really my motorcycles are, our preferred mode of travel. And, and, uh, you know, the first, when you first start out on a big trip, the first three or four days, you kind of have to get in your groove, um, get your body used to it again and figure out where you're comfortable and that kind of stuff. But, but no, traveling by motorcycle is, is, uh, one of our favorite, favorite ways of going anywhere. And of course, you guys are riding two up, and many people will always ask, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times, um, have you thought about getting a license and riding your own bike? You know, to be honest with you, I kind of feel a little bit of pressure from other women riders, but um, I'm not even that good a bicycle rider, to be honest with you. And um, I tend to be the one on the back of the bike who takes all the photographs, um, I tend to be the one looking for deer. Um, I tend to be the one who does, without navigating with a GPS, um, the general directions. And I am really happy on the back of that bike. Yeah, she's a really good pillion passenger. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing. I think a lot of people think that you're, you, you ride on the back because you don't have your license or something. But there are times when riding together is a huge advantage on, on one motorcycle. And it's certainly a lot more expensive. You, you double your fuel immediately when you have another bike there. Um, or almost double your fuel. Oh, yeah. I guess you use a little bit more for riding two up, but there's, there's huge advantages to riding two up. As long as the person enjoys being on the back, that's key, which is obvious here. Well, you know, we have a lot in common with Tim and Marissa Nortier's. Oh, yeah. um, her and I, um, her and I have basically kind of the same opinion about riding on the back of the bike, but um, there's been times I've gotten off and walked um, simply because I think it's the safer option for Greg to be able to handle the bike without me on the this back. This is in rough terrain or something. Um, and there's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's been times where I thought maybe it would have been a good idea if I could have known how to ride a bike, if something would happen to him. But the motorcycles we ride are really too big for me to handle anyway. So even if I did have a license and did know how to ride, um, I, I, I would have trouble just handling the size of motorcycle that we tend to travel on. Any thought though of um, if something happens with Greg, he hurts himself or something, he can't ride where that's where having a license would be an advantage for you. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, uh, you know, we have a spot. (laughs) (laughs) So. And she can't, she can, she rides a scooter. So. (laughs) So technically Melanie, you can ride the bike. It just might be a little rough. Yeah, as long as we got her going in first gear, she could make it somewhere. Probably, <laughs> probably it would it would be very stressful. Mm-hmm. 
Do you ever get lonely on the road? Melanie, I'm going to start with you with this. Do you ever get lonely or, or um, sort of miss that comfort of, of home friends? No, I don't. And it's because Greg and I have traveled so much. Um, we work together basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I don't really have um, friends that I see um face to face most of our friends are all on the internet and they're all other travelers because other travelers tend to get your life mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying they understand the lifestyle um but i keep in touch with my family and that kind of stuff and i and i see them occasionally but uh, we we miss our grandchildren more than we do anything. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. So when you're back home, do you find that you sort of have to continuously explain yourself or almost defend your your life choices? Well, we we tend to think that if if or our experience is if we if you start to tell people too much, they tend to kind of put up a wall, and they don't really understand the lifestyle so they don't really even want to hear about it and i and i even find that that friends and stuff who aren't motorcycle people or aren't travelers really aren't interested in the stories you tell it's other people who travel full-time or travel the way we do that are that are interested in the stories you want to tell why do you think that is do you you think it's so that they don't hear something that they're missing Uh, you know i i'm i'm not really sure and it's like looking at somebody else's vacation pictures Mm. You know, you're interested for about the first 10 photos and then and then it's somebody else's vacation. And if you're never going to go there and never going to do it, your interest is is very short. You know, and also there's a lot of people, you know, here here in the United States where, you know, family and friends are. They just don't. uh, They're so scared of what is out there that uh, they don't want to leave the United States and they just think that we're uh, just totally crazy for um, our viewpoints of, uh, you know, people that are nice and helpful in the different countries because they, they, they hang on to what they've been, you know, what they see on CNN, where if you go to another country, they all hate you, which is definitely not the truth. You guys are camping um, a lot, pretty much all the time, aren't you? Um, it depends. So we sort of have, I sort of have, uh, you know, we sort of work out our, I mean, we don't have a ton of money, so we have to budget our money or else, yeah, it definitely would run out. So usually the most I like to spend uh, on anything, uh, lodging wise is maybe 25 to $30 a month. I mean a day. So, uh, you know, we tend to cook our own food and, uh, try to find lodging that's at least that, if not, you know, closer to free. So it, it depends on where in the world we are. When we were in, you know, Vietnam and you get a nice hotel for $5, um, it, you know, why would you camp? Mm. So uh, in the United States, we tend to um, camp a lot because, I mean, you, you can't find really anything for under, you know, 50, 60 bucks and the very inexpensive side. And uh, so we, we enjoy our camping here, but it, it all depends on really where we are and what the conditions are. If, it, if we don't feel safe, you know, it, we'll end up getting a, a more secure hotel or if we're in the middle of nowhere and, you know, the views are fantastic, we'll throw up a tent. 
I'm constantly amazed at the cost of camping in North America. Um, you mentioned the $50. I mean, you, you, you know, you go to a, a, I remember stopping at this and I don't stop at parks. Well, almost never. I almost never go to campgrounds. I do wild camping, south camping, but the, and you see the prices. I mean, they, they want $35 just for you to pitch your tent for a night, you know, you're, and you're arriving at night. <laughs> it seems crazy. Right. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Yeah. So we have to, we have to be careful of how we spend our money when we're, when we're here. So, you know, we can get out and do what we really want to do. So a lot of times we plan our big trips based, based on that. Um, if we can get cheap airfare over to someplace, um, and of course it's all depending on the time of year. Um, but we tend to, to go to places that we can, that we can travel cheaply travel off season, travel shoulder seasons, that kind of stuff. So that, uh, we aren't there during peak season who, but who would want to go during peak season mm-hmm. anyway? Um, so we, we, we find a way to budget those trips and, and, uh, there's, we have such a long list of places we want to see that it doesn't really matter what order we see them in. <laughs> right. How old are you guys? Roughly, roughly. You don't have to say exactly. Um, I'm, how old am I? I'm 63. <laughs> and I'm 61. So 63 and 61. And, you, and you're still camping. And the reason I ask that is because mo- the most common complaint I hear as people start to get older about camping, or, or they would just when we talk about travel, is they'll say, well, I'm getting older now and I don't really like sleeping in the tent on the ground. Do you guys find any of that? Or, or do you do you find that it, it works fine and, and you have no issues? Well, we're a little bit different on that. I, <laughs> I could camp every night. I, I love sleeping outside in a tent, sleeping bag, whatever. I, I, I love that. Uh, I love being outside and sleeping like that. How about you? Well, well my general rule is about every three or four nights, I want a, a bed and a, and a real shower. Mm. Well, the shower, um, definitely. You, you, can't, you can't avoid that, can yeah. you? I mean, that's... No, yeah, no. She won't. She won't jump into the Arctic Ocean to take a shower <laughs> or to no. take a quick bath. <laughs> I think the longest we've gone is about thirty-two days tent camping every night, but that's even picking up and and moving campgrounds every, every day. Night, yeah. Um, sometimes it's easier if you're in one spot for two or three nights in a row. You're not loading and unloading your gear and setting up camp every night, but. But that that was a long stretch for me. I know that we found that we what I call I call sort of uh, camp fitness. You know, by camping, by crawling in and out of your tent, and by doing your your whole setup in your tent with putting your mat down, all very minor things. But by doing those things, you're stretching all the time, and you're twisting yourselves around, and 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 sort of contorting yourself a little bit you tend to get a little bit of fitness from that. You get a certain level of fitness. And the reason I say that is because I notice that after we don't camp for a while, we go a stint where we don't camp, all of a sudden when you do it, you feel stiff at it again. And, and that's why I ask, because I'm wondering, is it just the movement that is, that is keeping us going that that makes you more camp fit, that makes it so it's more comfortable to camp? Uh, you know, is, is that what people are running into? Yeah. Uh, possibly. But I mean, if we haven't camped, and our, our lifestyle is pretty much camp all the time. I mean, it's like when we're in our camper here, it's a little bit more, a little bit easier. But if we're on the move, you know, you got the setup and the tear down and everything from everything outside. But when I'm on the tent and on, on the bike, um, I, I tend to find that, yeah, the, the, the movement and the exercise I get from just doing that, um, you know, keeps me stretched out and everything. And then we have a little workout routines that we do. And uh, also, we tend to eat much better on the road. We can uh, we cook for ourselves, and we cook for ourselves all the time anyway. But um, we end up, 
you know, you're stopping at the market every night before you um, set up camp and uh, buying fresh vegetables and fresh meat, whatever, you know, is available. And uh, we, we, we tend to be a lot fitter and a lot healthier when we're on the road for a bit. I think one uh, for me too, uh, the, one of the important things is having the right equipment. Um, I think I've been through four mattress pads before I found one I really mm-hmm. liked. And, uh, and to try it, uh, to try it when you've bought it at the store and lay on it is not like laying on the ground on it. So I think, I think having a good sleeping bag and having a good mattress pad, um, and the right tent is yeah. is probably some of the most important things making camping way more comfortable. So what is the sleeping pad that you found works great and the tent? Oh, that oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. I don't remember the name of it. <laughs> yeah, um, I have a 3-inch pad. Mine is much bigger than Greg. 3 inches thick. Cuz I'm a side sleeper. Yeah, yeah, it's a blow up. It's a it's an air mattress, but but I I sleep on my side and I tend to sleep on one hip and if I don't I can't walk in the morning so if if I'm sleeping in a tent it's going to be on the pad that's making me comfortable. Now is this a fully inflatable one or is there foam in there as well? No, it's fully inflatable. Mm, I see. Yeah, we have the routine all set up. He does. He has his chores when we set up the campsite and I have my chores and and so it's a pretty good routine that we have once we get get traveling. And with the tent and stuff. So. Yeah, we can pretty much get to a site and have everything set up in about 15 minutes, I guess, and be ready to go do something. Mm, yeah, that's that's always nice. What about the tent? Do you remember what kind of tent it is? Um, I, well, I've got about five different tents. So um, it sort of depends on what, what we're needing. Um, yeah, they're not uh, real expensive tents. But it's whatever does the job. I mean, uh, you guys did a, um, I think it was maybe a Venture Rider Radio Raw episode with Sam Anacom when they're talking about picking the right tent. And uh, yeah, we got a tent color as well. Yeah. The yellow. <laughs> <laughs> we just got back from uh, Norway. Uh, well, from up through Scandinavia and everything when that had aired. And uh, that was one of the times I was kicking myself for not ta- for taking a three season tent and uh, <laughs> not planning that in particularly well. It was uh it was definitely not the right tent for the job on that trip. So how, how does this work exactly then? You, like, I want to go back to sort of how you're planning your trips and how you do your trips. I mean, obviously you're, you're back in the States now because of this, this thing that's going on in the world. Right. But otherwise, you're out for a few months and you're back or you're, you're always leaving your bike somewhere. Just run, get into that detail a little more. Um, well, the last few years, it's just um, we, we um, have an idea of where we wanted to go. And uh, we would need some place to leave the bike, and somebody would actually step forward. Um, the year we went, where did we go? Down through Greece, Turkey, and uh, ended up in Bulgaria and uh, met a guy um, through, well, he was friends with um, Motocamp uh, Bulgaria, and he lived in Sofia. And he offered to uh, keep my bike for until the next time we flew back in a little garage he had where he stored his bikes. And I'd never met him. And since then, we've become really good friends. And uh, I mean, last year it was in the UK at uh, uh, Nigel's house. And um, oh, this year it's with a guy down in Portugal for right now. But that was sort of last minute. But I never really know where I'm going to leave the bike until we get somewhere. And then we just tend to figure it out. You can always get a storage unit or something somewhere. 
And uh, we book one-way tickets. Yeah. So we fly back to wherever the bike is, and then and then we usually have um, a general idea of where we're going, but we make no reservations anywhere as far as um, commitments, unless like the the ferry across Gibraltar. I think that one did not need a reservation, but for Greg to get the bike from the UK to Spain, he needed a reservation. So those are things you book in advance, but we like just figuring out where we're going to go when we're, when we get there, Greg uses maps me and has all kinds of points of interest on the maps me. So So, we sort of just piece them together. So you're landing and and you're just sort of hitting the road and and going where you want to go. You did mention that you had some places that you wanted to see. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure out like a general direction we're going to go. Like um, we want to go up through Scandinavia. So um, I would pick, I would just sort of research it and see different things along the route and everything where we wanted to go. Then we sort of pick, are we going to do this clockwise, counterclockwise? Where do we want to end up? And a lot of the time we'll, we'll, we'll try to, not try to, but if there is like a, like an overland meeting somewhere around where we're going to be, we will try to fit it in just because we enjoy meeting, you know, the overlanders and everything while we're on the road. And, uh, you know, most, a lot of them are our friends and then you can meet all new people and get different ideas on different routes and where they've been. And, uh, so we, we tend to try to at least incorporate something, some kind of meeting that might be happening around somewhere when we're going. Now, are you going from one trip to another trip or do you go on a trip and then come back home for a while? We have been going on a trip and coming home. Uh, we'd go on a trip and fly back, and then we'd uh, – uh, either I was working a little bit, but now we just uh, – we'll come back. We'll see family and look for next tickets as to where we might want to go if we're going to continue on with the trip where the bike was left right away or maybe something else might pop up that we want to go spend a couple, three months doing something else and then go back and get the bike and continue on. So, I mean, now that um, uh, our, our, our dog is gone, that's going to open up a lot more things for us where we're not going to have to just uh, run back for a period of time and then find somebody else to take her for three months, which always depended on where the tickets were flying from. So if we found good tickets out of, say, Boston, we would find try to find a friend in that area that would watch Gypsy for like three months. So we've been mm-hmm. pretty successful doing that with friends and family. And as far as long-term plan, what's the long-term plan? Long-term plan. Um, <laughs> long-term plan is just continue on traveling. Uh, we got to get back. I get the bike in Portugal, and um, I want to head farther east. I want to take that bike. Um, there's a, another couple that were in Africa and got sort of stranded there and are back in the U.K. and uh, thinking about meeting them in the stands. I think he knows the Duvals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> that that's definitely on for next year. And, um, what I'd really like to do is, you know, finish up that area for right now. I'd love to get to, uh, Nepal and, um, go across Russia into Mongolia. And there, and there's this bike sitting down in, uh, South America and Ecuador, which I'd, uh, like to get a hold of where I could spend a couple, three years traveling down through South America and then maybe ship that over to Africa. I mean, there's, We've got a lot of plans and I've got a lot of maps. It's just how we piece it together is going to be the deal. What do you get out of it, out of traveling and seeing the things that are on your list? Personally? Yeah. 
Oh man, it just it just enriches my life. I'm I'm fairly introverted. My career was fairly uh, um, like a one person deal, so I'm fairly introverted. And, and Melanie's the extrovert, so she'll she's the one that will go up and uh, meet meet the people. Usually, not not just I mean, she's just that's her personality. She meets people, and I sort of tag along. And it's a good mix because I ended up meeting a lot of people that if I was just by myself, I don't know if I would meet because of my personality. So um, just the travel and seeing things, it just enriches my whole um, ideas on the world and things that I felt to be true of uh, what I've learned throughout my life through history or, you know, being here in the States that I tend to find are are different the people are different from what i expect and uh that's that's real big for me i love to find go to a country and um meet people that are you know different cultures different religions and get along great with them and learn about their lives and and pass that on to other people even if they're not interested in listening i still talk about it because you know there's so much prejudice in the world right now it's, it's nice to, uh, for other people to have, like my, at least what I'm saying might make them think a little bit. And, and I was just sitting here waiting to ask exactly that, is if you felt compelled to pass this information on. I mean, if, if that's part of it, you know, that you're discovering these things and you want to let other people know. But other than talking, is there any other way that you try to do it? Yeah, um, we have um, put together several presentations and I really enjoy going to the different motorcycle events and um, talking about, I mean, I'm not one to get up in front of a crowd and talk to a bunch of people. I mean, I'm getting better at it. Melanie's uh, sort of taken me out of my little cubicle that I used to stick myself <laughs> in. And um, so I, you know, we get up in front of people and talk to them about, uh, we've traveled here, we've traveled here, this is what we've done, the people are this and that, and uh, it's not as scary out there and as uh, you might think, and it's not as hard to do. You don't need to go on a tour, you can actually just go there and take off and, you know, it's, it's fairly easy to do. You know, we used to take some people on tours when we were younger. And uh, so that's pretty much what we do. I've got a presentation I just put together. It's a lot of people would ask us, how do we do this? Are we are we super rich? Um, you know, how can you travel the world like this? So we put together a presentation on how we did it, how we spend our money, uh, what sacrifices basically we make. And the reason we never went on a big trip, which are quite a few, you know, I always wanted to take off and go on a one, two, five year trip. But it, in my career, it was never possible. And um, it, uh, you know, it's, we, we show people that uh, they can actually get out and do this. You don't have to be super rich in it and show them how to do it. When you do those presentations, do you find that people get it? They, they, they listen to you and they go, okay, this is, this is something I can do. Or do you find that they sort of look at you and think, yeah, it's, well, they, they must have something. Yeah, a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. A lot of some people just don't believe it that can that can be done very inexpensively, even though there's so many travelers out there now on uh, limited budgets. You know, they'd save for five years and take off for two years and two or three years and travel with a, just very little money, where most people wouldn't think they could ever possibly make it, and and it does work. So uh, you sort of get a little bit of both. You get the ones that 
want to believe it. And uh, here's another person telling them, yeah, this is how we do it. Yeah, it can be done. You can still have uh, your dog back home. You can still have family ties. You can still have your grandchildren and be in their lives and actually just and, and travel. You can sort of do both if you if you want it bad enough to make the sacrifices you have to make for it. I can think of lots of times when I've been talking with people like this and um, they will say that they get asked a lot by people, how do you do it? But they're sort of embarrassed by the fact that it's so easy that, that you don't really need to, you don't need to be a certain type of person. You don't need to be that outgoing person or the, or the person with a lot of money. You, you don't need these, these huge things that make you different, that it's travels fairly easy. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it definitely does. I, I think the hardest thing is for somebody to wrap their head around is, uh, that they can do it and to set a day and actually do it. You don't need much planning. Uh, you know, having a map and having an idea of where you're going, a little bit of an idea of the culture. We always try to learn a few words, even though we don't do very well. Melanie speaks a little bit of Spanish and I, I don't speak, I barely speak English. And, uh, you know, we try to learn a couple words of the language of the country we're going to so we can say, please, thank you, hello, goodbye, you know, with a smile and a handshake. And that just goes so far. But, uh, yeah, they just have to want to do it bad enough to to do it. And, um, I mean, if their priorities are having, you know, expensive house, expensive cars, you know, an expensive motorcycle, and they still can't, well, you sometimes have to get rid of those things in your life and set your priorities to a different point. Mm, it's like a metaphor for life, isn't it? For no matter what you yeah. want in life, th- those are the keys to just about anything. If you want something. Definitely. Melanie, what do you get from the style travel? Well, you know, I, I, I find that, that any of the experiences that Greg and I have together are so much more, um, meaningful to either of us because we are together. And, you know, I have people ask me, where's your favorite place? And I, and it's usually the last place we were at, um, simply because of the memories of the strongest in the back of my mind. But, um, it's, it's made such a difference in my, um, in my focus as to, as to where I want the rest of my life to be and, and what I want it to be. And I keep telling people, I said, you know, Greg and I are kind of looking for a place to retire, but I don't know that that's really true. You know, we have a lot of expat friends who have found the perfect place for them, and and I don't think we have found the perfect place for us yet, and I don't know that we will, but it's sure fun looking for it. (laughs) (laughs) You you mentioned that, um, that you use Maps Me. And, uh, and I was wondering, are you are you fairly? Um, you, you mentioned using maps and and uh, computer there um, or phone. Are you fairly technical while you're traveling, or is it old school? It's um it's pretty old school. Um, I always carry paper maps with me, and I love just sort of. A lot of times we'll just take off in a direction and um, sometimes get lost. And that's when I actually have to use my GPS or going through a city or if we have a site that we want to see. And, um, you know, we'll be just taking back roads towards it. And we know we'll eventually get to that point at some time during the day. So I, that's about all I use. I use the maps, me on my phone, uh, I carry an old phone with me just for that. So I don't have to use it with my other phone. And, uh, and that's basically it. I carry a computer with me just, I don't know, 
a lot of times we're doing a presentation or something on the road and I need my computer with me. And that's about the only reason I use that. And uh, our cameras, we um, we don't take great pictures. I'm, I'm not a huge photographer, so we use our phones and a little camera along the road. So we, we travel fairly simply. What have you guys learned about um, about travel itself and your bikes that you could pass on, whether it's gear, whether it's the bike itself, um, or in travel? Well, I, I tend to tell people, and, and my children are an example, they like to know what hotel they're going to be at. They want to know what restaurant they're going to eat at, no matter what city that they're in. Their trips are planned um, pretty much every step of the way. And I tend to tell people that when you travel, the best thing to do is have a hotel for the night you get there and a hotel for the night before you leave, because you never know what's going to happen to you in between. And that's the best way you can get the best out of a vacation. And for us, it's not a vacation. It's a lifestyle. But mm-hmm. um, I, I just have found that it's enriched our life so much that I that would be the one thing I don't really want to give up is traveling. So you're saying that, that, that solid thing of having a place when you arrive to stay and then right before you leave to stay before you have to get in your plane or, or depart, those are the important things and leave the rest open. Mm-hmm. That's how we like to travel, yes. Mm. Yeah. What, what about when it comes to um, dealing with border crossings, paperwork, that sort of thing? Um, well, I usually try to do a little bit of research on it. So much, There's so much out there about, uh, it's not like, you know, Ted used to have to do it. it there's so much out there now that um, it's sort of hard to get to a border and not be prepared. So, uh, you know, I usually carry copies of everything. I uh, I have everything you know, copied and uh, emailed to myself. So I have it in PDF files also. Um, we get to a border crossing and uh, we sort of know what to expect and how much time it's going to take. And we get surprised quite a bit. And we get confused and, you know, lost getting through the processes. And we're never, you know, it never seems like you're fully prepared. But um, most of the time they're fairly, you know, they're they're fairly easy. Some just take more time than others. So generally, how do you feel about border crossings? Are they stressful? Um, Central America. Central America was. (laughs) Yeah. Central Central America was stressful. Yeah. Honduras, Nicaragua is an ex, uh, especially, uh, um, difficult crossing for us. Yeah, uh, uh, every, everything was real confusing. We had a trailer that didn't have a registration on it. We had a dog that needed different shots going into Honduras. That uh, was it. Honduras? Yeah. Yeah. That um, no one ever on the radar had picked up on that. And uh, it's just um, it was just more difficult. I coming into Honduras, I needed to, uh, Gypsy needed another shot. And they wanted to keep my passports while I went looking for um, a veterinarian to get a shot for her. So instead of leaving the passports, I left Melanie as a hostage at the border <laughs> and came back three about three hours later and she was terribly sick. So I ended up having to uh, leave my passport at the at the crossing, find a hostel, get her to a little hotel at the first town go back and, uh, well, then I got the shot for the dog, go back. And luckily my passport was still there, but, uh, coming back through, uh, Nicaragua into Honduras there, we couldn't, couldn't get the stuff right with the dog. So we ended up having to use a helper for a, for a bit 
couldn't find the policeman in the parking lot that had to do our paperwork. So we ended up using a helper. And after he was, after they were all done, I've, I, you know, they take your paperwork and you chase them around. And Melanie stayed with Gypsy with the bike and we got back and he hops on a scooter and takes off with my paperwork. And I was like, you know, I, he says, follow me. So I jump, we jump on the bike and I follow him. And about uh, two or three kilometers out of town into um, Honduras, he uh, pulls in behind a gas station and he's got uh, it's him and three other friends waiting for us and wanting money. So we had some money on us, gave him some money and uh, they wanted more and wanted us to go back to the border crossing to an ATM to get money. And I wasn't going to pay him any more money. And uh, I started I think they thought it was crazy white man after him at that point. So I went crazy. And they ended up giving me my paperwork and uh, wishing me a, a happy trip the rest of the time. And that was the end of it. But uh, what do you mean? Went just, crazy. Talk about that. Uh, well, I, I used some sailor language on them and uh, my eyes got pretty wide and uh, my voice got pretty loud. And I can sort of if I get in that state, I can be a little intimidating and um so I don't think they, I don't think they really wanted to hurt me. They just wanted to intimidate me. And at that point they found out that I was done being intimidated. And that was sort of the end of the confrontation. So have, and have you run into more of that? No, no. Well, so with that, you had that experience and you, and you had the experience where Melanie was sick. When that goes on, how do you feel about what you're doing? Um, well, I, think that might have had a little bit of a bearing on why when we got back to the states melanie needed a point to stop because it was central america is just it's it's not the country's beautiful it's just there's so many border crossings so quickly when you're going down through there you sort of get worn out from difficult border crossings so we had already gone through that the border crossings and spent maybe two or three weeks in uh, costa rica um turned around we were coming back so we had to do it all over again and i think by that time she was just sort of over it she wanted a, a break off the bike and that seemed like a, a good idea for her so um we went ahead and did that but after after we bought the place we realized that wasn't really what we needed it was it was another issue so um we sold it and now we're you know back in the right frame of mind and ready to go again well, that was the only trip where either one of us have, has ever been sick. Greg spent five days in Guatemala, and we thought he might have had dengue. He didn't, but we thought he did. And then then I got sick when we crossed into Honduras. And I also lost my father while we were there. My father died when we were in Guatemala in the middle of nowhere, and I couldn't get back for his funeral. Oh, wow. So there were some things that happened on that trip yeah. that were that were a little more difficult than than uh, most of the trips we take. And, you know, we talk, everybody talks about all the wonderful things. And then sometimes they tell you the stories about really bad things. Um, but that was, that was a couple things that made it a little more difficult for me. Um, so other than that, uh, all the rest of the travels we've, we've done have been, nothing have been but nothing but good, ex good experiences. Yeah. How do you feel about paying bribes? And you must have ran into that in Central America. Um, 
Really, just the one. Just that, right? Just the one. Where just the, where well, they, that's, more, that's not even a bribe, is it? I mean, that's that wasn't your, really that's a, a bribe. And um, there were a couple times where we basically got robbed. Yeah, yeah the, <laughs> the kids would, you know, somebody put up a, you know, a rope across the road, and they'd want some money to take down the rope. And um, depending on what the crowd was, there were a couple kids. We were, I don't even really know where we were. I think we were in Mexico, in uh, Copper Canyon. And um, some little kids did it, and I don't know, I gave them a couple pesos because it was just sort of cute. But um, other than that, I, I don't I don't pay bribes. I haven't had to. I, I should say that. I haven't had to. Had, so do you have a method for dealing with it, you know, when you're approached? Cause I, I think you did have one. I, wasn't it in Europe? I, you were on your way to Nordcap or something, and, and you had somebody. Was one? I, I can't remember exactly where it was, but I I remember reading that you, in your blog you'd written about a cop kept rubbing his fingers together, so you're in, indicating he, oh, he wants some money. Yeah, well, we got a we got a parking ticket, and um, oh, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Where was that? It was in the, maybe the Czech Republic, Slovenia, Slovenia, Slovenia. Yeah, we had stopped at a very touristy area. We were just looking for a place to park. We wanted to get something to drink and a hamburger. And and we'd park where there were some bikes. And all of a sudden, the cops would come by and sort of chase us away. And they were saying something, and I'd just get on the bike and ride away. And um, then we got to another spot, and there were like, I don't know, six or seven bikes parked in this grassy area away from everything. So we pulled up there and parked. And cops showed up again. So we had walked away from the bike. So I walked back to the bike, getting ready to move it. And he's giving out little pieces of paper that had a stamp on it and everything. And they were wanting money for that, but he gave it to everybody. And a couple of the bikers took off going into town looking for money. And then a couple others just jumped on their bikes and rode away. And uh, they were from that country. And it was, it wasn't much. I can't remember how much it was, but it was basically for parking someplace where I shouldn't have been parking, which it was probably, you know, baloney anyway. But we did pay that because I had a ticket and I just didn't want to mess with that. And uh, I ended up with uh, my buddy in uh, in uh, Bulgaria who kept my bike, Demitar, told me that they target um, foreign license plates all the time anyway. He's had the same thing happen to him. So mm. I don't know if it's so much of a bribe, but it felt a little more official since they were handing out tickets. I probably could have just got on the bike and rode away, but I just didn't want to, you know, sometimes you just don't want to mess with that. It sounds to me that you guys aren't really rattled by officials. Should people be af afraid or fearful or um, how should they feel about officials in different countries? I guess it depends really on where you are. And when I go through Mexico and see the guys in the trucks and, uh, you know, with the machine guns and everything, I look at it more that they're there to protect me than that they're trying to uh, intimidate me. I mean, it's intimidating anyway when you're riding along and you see, a, you know, a young kid with a automatic weapon, you know. Mm. I imagine it's fairly intimidating to a lot of travelers that come to America also because of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people walking around with a gun on their hip. So it's, it's, sort of, it's just interesting the different the ways you take it. I've never... I don't think we've ever been. We were crossing scared. from Romania into the Ukraine and we pulled up on the bike and they took our passports and they pulled Greg into a room and we're kind of kind of messing with him a little bit. Why? They wanted to know why we were going to Kiev. Why you go to Kiev? And we kept saying, we're not going to Kiev. Greg kept saying, I'm not going to Kiev. And yeah, they had him in there for quite a while. 
and uh, one of the other security guards was a woman came in and she was laughing because I think she was just having fun with him. But I wasn't really intimidated by it. It just felt like sort of, you know, good cop, bad cop scenario where they were just trying to mess with me, I guess. And I mean, I not like I look like a spy or anything, but uh, they didn't they didn't want anything. It's not like they no. wanted a bribe. If they did, I didn't ke- pick up on it because we ended up leaving without paying anything. And it was just sort of just sort of interesting. And they were I mean, they were they were fine. It wasn't like they were mean to me. One one was trying to be the bad cop. He tried to intimidate me. But um, and he did. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and when you leave that, you don't sort of leave with a bad taste in your mouth, you know, with the experience. Well, we went into the Ukraine and I was sort of, uh, sort of had a, we were on the, just more alert, I guess, because of that. Like, what is this going to be like? Uh, are the people not going to like us? And, well, uh, well, and we travel with a U.S. license plate. Yeah. But our, our plate is from South Dakota and it doesn't say USA anywhere on it. All it says is South Dakota. So most of the people who see it don't really know where we're from. Mm. And we've had police officers follow us trying to figure out where we're from. Um, so it, it's kind of fun in that respect. We we took our USA stickers off the bike. We had friends tell us we should we should fly a Canadian flag because <laughs> everybody loves Canadians. <laughs> and we kind of sound Canadian. But um, it, it's 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 interesting to see the response in some places to us just flat being American. Yeah. Does that cause you a lot of problem when you show up with the foreign plate? Do you find that you are a magnet for maybe harassment? Uh, no. I think it, it draws more attention if people are just curious. Yeah, it's happened more times than not that people have gathered around us wanting to know where we're from. And if we tell them America, they're very interested in our trip and why we are at their, why we came to their country and when we start talking about their country, how proud they are of their country. So uh, I think a lot of times it is an icebreaker. It uh, it opens up people, I think, to us. We avoid big cities and we take a lot of small roads. And we end up in villages where they don't see a lot of foreigners. And a lot of them probably have never seen an American. Um, we've been to campsites where we've been the only Americans who've ever been there. You know, oh, wow. so... We, we, we like to, to go to those places, mm-hmm. but it, it usually they're curious of, about where we're from and, and where we are going. Yeah. What stories do you find yourself telling people a lot um, to represent your travels? Um, mostly um, the, about the people that we've met and the, um, the, the, the scenery, the scenery that we've seen and, and the good times that we've had. And basically on our travels, it's almost all been really good times. And we, we got sick a couple of times, had some breakdowns, which were really stressful. And, uh, at the time, but ended up getting out of it fairly, fairly easily. It wasn't really, we've never had a breakdown that was really difficult. And, uh, so we tell those stories of the P, you know, here we break down in the middle of nowhere and, you know, the kindness of the strangers. kindness of strangers just to you know open up their place for us. Uh, when we broke down in Turkey, we I had to push the bike about a mile, and ended up at a hotel that was closed for the season after dark. After dark, so I go walking into the back, and the gentleman's back there with his wife and his mother, and they're eating. And um, I'm like, 
I start telling my story, and he was from Istanbul with a place hotel down there for season. They were closed for season. And he opened up his hotel to us and let us stay, cooked us supper, cooked us breakfast. Well, cooked us supper two nights, breakfast for beautiful breakfast for two nights with never even a question that they would do something to help us. And another guy I'd met like two days previous had uh, he I had met him. just We were at a gas station and he comes, jumps out of a car, runs in, said, I want to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. Meet me at this bar in three hours. So we looked at each other and like, yeah, what the heck? So ended up being really good friends with this guy. And he helped us find um, a battery on a Sunday. It was delivered by what they called uh, the Turkish Hells Angels. One of the guys from the Hells Angels there delivered the battery to us and installed it. Super nice people. And it's those kind of experiences that I like to share with people that, you know, I, I go to Turkey and I'm not familiar, not super familiar with the cultures and I'm not familiar really at all with the religion. And you hear bad things all the time. And when you go there and you see these people and how nice they are, and they'll do anything. They'll do so much to help you. It's just I, it, I love having my views changed and the way I think of the world. And I love to share that with people as to, you know, hopefully make them expand their views a little bit. So through all these things that happened to you, like, like the one you just said, have you come up with new philosophies for the, or, or new ways to see things? I mean, I, and I know you have, because we sort of talked about it at the beginning with, but, it, but has it changed some fundamental things for you in the way you look at the world? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. We were sitting in a, in a restaurant on Crete one night and there were people at the tables fairly close to us. And, and Greg and I were just talking to each other and we had a lady across from us um, lean over and ask where we were from. And when we told her, she said, oh, my gosh, you don't sound like you're Americans. And I wasn't really sure how to take that. Um, I took it as a compliment because she did explain that she meant it as a compliment. Yeah, we were talking just about the things that we had seen on our trip and, the, you know, how nice the people were and just stuff like that. And uh, so we, we try to be ambassadors when we travel yeah, definitely. so that. Maybe if somebody has an idea of what they think an American is, that that they'll get a different idea, um, mm. what a stereotypical American is. Yeah, that, 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 is an, that is a good point. We a lot of times try to, you know, hopefully people's views of uh, what a typical American is from what they see on their news and everything, because what they get is sometimes just as wrong as what we get. And, uh, you know hopefully change their outlooks and the way they would view other people of the world that they just don't understand the cultures or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing as all of us. We get a certain um, idea of countries from wherever we get it from the news, the social media, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you get there, you find it something completely different. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've been pleasantly surprised almost all the time. If we had a certain view that wasn't even a, you know, very radical view where we'd get to a country and the people are just so different. It's just, uh, it's just, it, I love, I love it when that happens. Hey, um, some tips for, for people who might consider what you're doing. Um, don't be afraid. Uh, don't be afraid. I mean, do some research, 
you know, set your standards to what you can afford. Uh, you don't have to make a, uh, a commitment of a two or three year trip to see the world. Uh, pick some places that you might be comfortable with to start, you know, and just go. It's, it's really fairly easy to travel out there. They just need to make the commitment and have an open mind, a smile and a handshake and and just go just go out and do it. Well, you can't shake hands anymore. Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> and that was Greg and Melanie Turp. They're in Northeast Alabama right now, sitting things out. Their website is twowanderers.com. There's two R's in the end of that. That link will be in the show notes, along with we've got some great photos that they've sent us from their adventures. Drop by our website and check the show notes for this episode. And also, as uh, with all of the show notes, you'll find a comment section at the bottom. We'd love to get your comments there. Also, Greg and Melanie said that um, they're very open to answering any questions. They're happy to answer any questions. So if you've got questions for them, certainly reach out to them on social media and uh, and fire away. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for being a part of it. Thank you to Elizabeth Martin working in the background. And I just want to remind you, we have another show called ARR Raw that comes out monthly. If you're not subscribing already, you need to subscribe separately to that show. Now drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. We've got both shows there, all the show notes. There's all kinds of information in the show notes with some photographs and a place for you to put some comments. We'd like to get your comments on the website. And please follow us on social media and rate us anywhere you find podcasts. iTunes, in particular, um, get on there and give us a rating. We would really, really appreciate that. Also, if you're not a patron uh, supporter already, we really need your support. Drop by our website while you're doing everything else you're looking at there. Click on the support button. Have a look at what we have uh, to offer there. If you enjoy the show, we really need your support for the show. Anyway, if you can do it, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for being a part of it again today. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. Marissa Notier. And I'm Tim Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 